The Prayer of the Overcomer, the Gospel of John, chapter 17. Most scholars who have sought to harmonize the accounts of the four Gospels have the Lord Jesus praying the prayer of John 17 in the upper room after he had finished his instructions to the disciples. Then he and the disciples sang the traditional Passover hymns, left the upper room, and headed for the Garden of Gethsemane, where Jesus had been accustomed to meet with them and pray. Or whether he prayed it in the upper room or en route to the garden, this much is sure. It is the greatest prayer ever prayed on earth and the greatest prayer recorded anywhere in Scripture. John 17 is certainly the holy of holies of the gospel record, and we must approach this chapter in a spirit of humility and worship. To think that we are privileged, we are privileged to listen in as the as God the Son converses with his Father, just as he is about to give his life as a ransom for sinners. No matter what events occurred later that evening, this prayer makes it clear that Jesus was and is the overcomer. He was not a victim. He was and is the victor. Be of good cheer, he had encouraged his disciples. I have overcome the world. And the word world is used 19 times in this prayer, so it's easy to see the connection between the prayer and John 16, verse 33. If you and I will understand and apply the truths revealed in this profound prayer, it will enable us to be overcomers too. The progression progression of thought in this prayer is not difficult to discover. Jesus first prayed for himself and told the Father that his work on earth had been finished. Verses 1 through 5. In John chapter 17. Then he prayed for his disciples that the Father would keep them and sanctify them. He closed his prayer by praying for you and me and the whole church, that we might be unified in him and one day share his glory. So why did Jesus pray this prayer? Certainly he was preparing himself for the sufferings that lay ahead of him. As he contemplated the glory that the Father had promised him, he would receive new strength for his sacrifice. See Hebrews 12, verses 1 through 3. But he also had his disciples in mind in verse 13. What an encouragement this prayer should have been to them. He prayed about their security. He prayed about their joy, their unity. He prayed about their future. He also prayed that same thing for us today so that we would know all that he has done for us, all that he has given to us, and all that he will do for us when we get to heaven. In this prayer, the Lord declares four wonderful privileges that we have as his children, privileges that that help to make us overcomers. And verses 1 through 5 our Lord began this prayer by praying for himself but in praying for himself he was also praying for us 
A prayer for self is not by any means necessarily a selfish prayer. And an examination of Bible prayers shows that this is true. Our Lord's burden was the glory of God, and His glory would be realized in His finished work on the cross. The servant of God has every right to ask his father for help needed to glorify his name. In Matthew 6, chapter 6, verse 9, Hallowed be thy name is the first petition in our Lord's prayer. And it is the first emphasis in this prayer. He said, Father, the hour is come. And this reminds us of the many times in John's gospel when, quote, the hour... The words, the hour, is mentioned beginning at John 2, verse 4. Jesus had lived on a divine timetable. I have said that throughout this whole, uh, the whole gospel of John while on earth, and he knew he was in the will of the Father. In Psalms 31, he said, my times are in thy hand. The important word glory is used five times in these verses, and we must carefully distinguish the various glories that Jesus mentions. In John 17, verse 5, he referred to his pre-incarnate glory with the Father, the glory that he laid aside when he came to earth to be born, to serve, to suffer, and to die. And then in verse 4, he reported to the Father that his life and ministry on earth had glorified him because he, Jesus, had finished the work the Father gave him to do. And then in John 17, 1 through 5, or 1 and 5, our Lord asked that his pre-incarnate glory be given to him again so that the Son might glorify the Father in his return to heaven. The word glory itself is used eight times in this prayer. So it's an important theme. He glorified the Father in his miracles, to be sure, but he brought the greatest glory to the Father through his sufferings and through his death. See John 12 and John 13. From the human point of view, Calvary was a revolting display of man's sin. But from the divine point of view, the cross revealed and magnified the grace and glory of God. Jesus anticipated his return to heaven when he said in John 17 verse 4, I have finished the work which thou gavest me to do. This word work included his messages and miracles on earth. The training of the disciples for future service and most of all, his sacrifice on the cross. It's on the basis of his finished work that we as believers have the gift of eternal life. The word give is used in one form or another in this prayer at least 17 times. Seven times Jesus states that believers are the Father's gift to his Son. We're accustomed to thinking of Jesus as the Father's love gift to us. But the Lord affirms that believers are the Father's love gift to his beloved Son. 
eternal or everlasting life is an important theme in John's gospel. It's mentioned at least 17 times. Eternal life is God's free gift to those who believe on his son. The father gave his son the authority to give eternal life to those whom the father gave to the son. From the human viewpoint, we receive the gift of eternal life when we believe on Jesus Christ, but from the divine viewpoint, we have already been given to the Son in divine election. This is a mystery that the human mind cannot fully understand nor explain, but we must accept it by faith. What is eternal life anyway? It is knowing God personally. It is knowing God personally, not just knowing about God, not just knowing about him, but having a personal relationship with him through faith in Jesus Christ. We cannot know the Father apart from the Son. It's not enough simply to believe in God. This will never save a lost soul from an eternal hell. The devils or the demons also believe and tremble, it says in James 2. Verse 19, and they're not going to be saved. Our Lord's debate with the Jewish leaders makes it clear that people may be devoutly religious and still not know God. Go back and read John 8, verse 12. It makes it clear that people may be devoutly religious and still not know God. Eternal life is not something we earn by character or conduct. It is a gift that we receive by admitting that we are sinners. By repenting. Repenting means turning away and believing on Jesus and Jesus Christ alone. The Father answered his son's request and gave him the glory. There is in heaven today a glorified man, a God-man, Jesus Christ. Because he has been glorified in heaven, sinners can be saved on earth. Anyone who trusts Jesus Christ will receive the gift of eternal life. Because we share his life, we are overcomers, for we also share in his victory. For whatsoever is born of God overcometh the world, and this is the victory that overcometh the world, even our faith. 1 John 5 verse 4. When you were born the first time you were born in Adam, you were born a loser. When you were born again through faith in Christ, you were born a winner. Satan has tried to obscure the precious faith of the finished work of Jesus Christ because he knows it is a basis for spiritual victory. The Bible says in Revelations 12, 11, and they overcame him, speaking of Satan, by the blood of the Lamb. Don't let the enemy rob you of your overcoming power through Christ's finished work. We know his name. In John 17, verses 6 through 12, Christ has given his own eternal life, but he has also given them the revelation of the Father's name in verse 6. The Old Testament Jew knew his God as Jehovah, the great I Am. Jesus took this sacred name, I Am, 
and made it meaningful to his disciples. Jesus said, I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the good shepherd. In other words, Jesus revealed the Father's gracious name by showing his disciples that he was everything they needed. But the Father's name includes much more than this, for Jesus taught his disciples that God, the great I Am, was their heavenly Father. The word Father is used 53 times in John from John chapter 13 to John chapter 17 and 120 times 122 times in John's gospel in his message to the Jews Jesus made it clear that the father sent him that he was equal to the father and that his words and works came from the father it was a clear claim to deity that they refused to believe In the Bible, name, the word name or our name refers to nature because names so often were given to reveal something special about, say, the nature of that person that was bearing that name, like Jacob. Jacob was a schemer, and his name comes from a Hebrew word name that means to take, take by the heel or, or to tip up or to deceive. Well, the name... Let's look at the name Isaac. That means laughter. Well, because he brought joy. Isaac brought joy to Abraham and Sarah. And then look at the Savior's name, Jesus. Excuse me. Reveals that he is the Savior. I have manifested thy name. Means I have revealed the nature of God. One of the ministers ministries of the son was to declare the father see john chapter 1 verse 18 the greek word translated declared means to unfold to lead to show the way jesus did not instantly reveal the father in a say a blaze of blinding glory because his disciples could not have endured that kind of experience You know what? God doesn't give us more than we can handle. But gradually, by his words and by his deeds, he revealed to the disciples the nature of God as they were able to bear it. See John chapter 16, verse 12. The emphasis in this section is on the safety of the believer. God keeps his own. Our safety depends on the nature of God, not on our own character or our own conduct. When he was on earth, Jesus kept his disciples and they could depend on him. He said, I kept them in thy name. If the limited Savior in a human body could keep his own while he was on earth, Should he not be able to keep them now that he is glorified in heaven? He and the Father together with the Holy Spirit are surely able to guard and secure God's people in every way that they would need it. And then furthermore, God's people are the Father's gift to his Son. Would the Father present his Son with a gift that would not last? The disciples had belonged 
to the Father by creation and by covenant. They were Jews, but now they belong to the Son. How precious we are in His sight. How He watches over us and even now prays for us. Whenever you feel as though the Lord has forgotten you, or that His love seems so far away from you, read Romans 8, 28-39 and rejoice in it. Our security rests in another fact. We are here to glorify him. See John 17, verse 10. With all of their failures and faults, the disciples still received this word of commendation. I am glorified in them. So would it bring glory to God if one of his own who trusted in the Savior did not make it to heaven? Certainly not. This was Moses' argument when the nation of Israel sinned, actually. Wherefore should the Egyptians speak and say, For mischief did he bring them out to slay them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth. Certainly God knows all things, so why save them at all if he knows they will fail or fall along the way? Whatever God starts, God finishes. See Philippians 1.6. God has provided the divine resources for us to glorify him and be faithful. We have his word, and his word reveals to us all that we have in Jesus Christ. The word gives us faith and it gives us assurance. We have the Son of God interceding for us as well sitting at the right hand of God, interceding for us every day. Since the Father always answers the prayers of His Son, see John 11, 41 and 42, this intercessory ministry helps to keep us safe and secure. We also have the fellowship of the church that they may be one as we are The New Testament knows nothing of isolated believers. Wherever you find saints, you find them in fellowship. And why would that be? Because God's people, they need each other. The Bible makes that clear. Jesus opened his upper room message by washing the disciples' feet, by teaching them to minister to one another, In the hours that would follow these men, including confident Peter, would discover how weak they were and how much they needed each other's encouragement. The believer then is secure in Christ for many reasons. The very nature of God, the nature of salvation, the glory of God, the intercessory ministry of Christ, But, you know, there are some that are going to say, but well, what about Judas? Was he secure? How did he, how did he fall? Why did Jesus keep, why did Jesus not keep him safe? For the simple reason that Judas was never one of Christ's own. Jesus faithfully kept all that the Father gave to him. But Judas had never been given to him by the Father. Judas was not a believer. See John chapter 6, verses 64 through 71. He had never been cleansed, John 13, 11. He had not been among the chosen, John 13, 18. He had never been 
given to Christ, John 18, verses 8 through 9. No, Judas is not an example of a believer who, quote, lost his salvation. He's an example of an unbeliever who pretended to have salvation, but was finally exposed as a fraud. Jesus keeps all of whom the Father gives to him. We're overcomers because we share his life. There's a third privilege also that enables us to overcome. We have his word, the word of God, uh, verses 13 through 19. He says, I have given them thy word, verse 14. The word of God is the gift of God to us. The father gave the words to his son, and the son gave them to his disciples, who in turn have passed them along to us. They were inspired by the Spirit of God, 2 Timothy 3.16. Also see 2 Peter 1.20 and verse 21. The word is divine in origin, a precious gift from heaven. We must never take God's word for granted. For those who are overcomers know the word and how to use it daily. How to use it in daily life. In just living normal, regular, everyday life. So how does the word of God enable us to overcome the world? To begin with, it gives us joy. And this inward joy gives us the strength to overcome. See Nehemiah 8, verse 10. We commonly think of Jesus as a man of sorrows, as it says in Isaiah 53, verse 3. And indeed he was, but he was also a person of deep abiding joy. 1713 in John excuse me, John chapter 17, verse 13, is the very heart of this prayer, and its theme is joy. Jesus had referred to his joy already in John 15, verse 11, and had explained that joy comes by transformation and not substitution. We went over that thoroughly in John chapter 15. And then John 16, joy also comes from answered prayer. So he made it clear that joy comes from the word also. The believer does not find his joy in the world, but in the word. So like John the Baptist, we should rejoice greatly when we hear the bridegroom's voice through the word of God. We must never picture Jesus going around with a long face and a a melancholy disposition. He was a man of joy, and he was revealed that joy that would bring joy to others. His joy was not the fleeting uh, levity of a sinful world, but the abiding enjoyment of the Father and the Word. He did not depend on outward circumstances, but he depended on inward spiritual resources that were actually hidden from the world. And this is the kind of joy he wants us to have. And we can have it through his word. Jeremiah 15 says, The word was unto me the joy and rejoicing of mine heart. I have rejoiced in the way of thy testimonies as much as in all riches. 
Psalms 119, verse 14. The word not only imparts the joy of the Lord, but also assures us of his love. The world hates us, but we are able to confront this hatred with God's own love, a love imparted to us by the Spirit through the word. The world hates us because we do not belong to the world system and will not be conformed to the world system. To its practices and its standards, we will not be conformed. Romans 12, verse 2. The Word reveals to us what the world is really like. The Word exposes the world's deceptions and dangerous devices. The Word competes for the Father's love. But the Word of God enables us to enjoy the Father's love. One of the first steps towards a worldly life is the neglect of the Word of God. It was D.L. Moody wrote in, in the very front of his Bible, This book will keep you from sin, or sin will keep you from this book. That would be a pretty good notation to have in your Bible. We need to stay in the Word of God, just as the pillar of fire was darkness to the Egyptians, but it was light to Israel. So God's word is our light in this dark world. But the world cannot understand the things of God. The word of God not only brings us God's joy and love, but it also imparts God's power for holy living. The burden of our Lord's prayer in John was security. But there it is, sanctity, practical holy living to the glory of God. We are in the world, but not of the world. And we must not live like the world. So sometimes we think it would be easier if we were out of this world. But this is not true. Wherever we go, we take our own sinful self with us. And the powers of darkness will follow us. True sanctification, being set apart for God, comes through the ministry of the Word of God. The Bible says, Now ye are clean through the word which I have spoken unto you. In John 15, verse 3. When you were saved, you were set apart for God. As you grow in your faith, you are more and more experiencing sanctification. You love sin less and you love God more. You want to serve him and be a blessing to others. All of this comes through the word. Stay in the word of God. God's truth has been given to us in three editions. His word is truth. His son is the truth. And his spirit is the truth. We need all three if we're going to experience true sanctification a sanctification that touches every part of our inner person. We need all three. With the mind, we learn God's truth through the Word. With the heart, we love God's truth. His Son. Jesus was the Word, and the Word was made flesh and came and dwelt among us. 1 John 1 and 1. 
With the will, we yield to the Spirit and live God's truth day by day. It takes all three for a balanced experience of sanctification. It's not enough to just merely study the Bible and learn a great deal of doctrinal truth. That's all fine and good, but it's not enough. We must also love Jesus Christ more as we learn all that he is and all that he has done for us. Learning and loving should lead to living, allowing the Spirit of God to enable us to obey his word. And this is how we glorify him in this present evil world. The world or the word gives us joy. The word of God gives us love and it gives us power to live a holy life. It also gives us what we need to serve him as witnesses in this world. That perseverance, the power, the love, the joy, the peace, all that we need to be a witness for the Lord Jesus Christ. Sanctification is not uh, for the purpose of selfish enjoyment or, or for the purpose of boasting. It is so that we might represent Christ in this world and win others to him. Jesus set himself apart for us, and now we, he has set us apart for himself. The Father sent him into the world, and now he sends us into the world. We are people under orders, and we had better obey. Jesus is now set apart in heaven, praying for us that our witness will bear fruit as many repent of their sins and turn to the Lord Jesus Christ. How can we be overcome by the world when we have the word of God to enlighten us? If we're reading it, If we're reading the Word of God every day, we're being enlightened every day, we're being enabled by that Word of God, we're being encouraged by that Word of God, how can we not be good witnesses for Him? And how how can we not be a light to the world? How can we not be an encouragement to the world with all that we've received? Here, our Lord focuses our attention on the future as it talks about us sharing in his glory in chapter 17 verses 20 through 26. He begins to pray for us who live today for the whole church throughout all ages. He has already prayed about security and sanctity. Now the burden of his prayer is unity. He's concerned that His people experience a spiritual unity that is like the oneness of the Father and the Son. Christians may belong to different fellowships, but they all belong to the Lord and to each other. The disciples had often exhibited a spirit of selfishness, selfishness, competition, disunity, and this must have broken Jesus' heart. I wonder how he he feels when he sees the condition of the church today. In verse 2 through 5, he has already given his glory to us, and he 
promises that we will further experience that glory when we get to heaven. All true believers have God's glory within. No matter what they might look like on the outside, Christian harmony is not based on the externals of the flesh. Christian harmony is not based on the flesh at all, but the internals and the eternals of the spirit in the inner person. So we must look beyond the elements of our first birth, race, color, abilities, etc., and build our fellowship on the essentials of our new birth. We already possess his glory within. As we grow in the Lord, the glory within begins to grow and to reveal itself in what we say and in what we do and the way that we say things and the way that we do things. People do not see us and glorify us. They see the Lord and glorify him. One of the things that most impresses the world is the way Christians love each other and live together in harmony. So it is this witness that our Lord wants in the world. He said in verse 21, that the world may believe that thou hast sent me. The lost world cannot see God, but they can see Christians. And what they see in us is what they believe about God. If they see love and they see unity, then they will believe that God is love. If they see hatred and division, they will reject the message of the gospel. Jesus has assured us that some will believe because of our witness. See verse 20. But we must make sure that our witness is true and it's loving. Some Christians are like prosecuting attorneys and judges instead of uh, being faithful. faithful witnesses and this is and this only turns lost sinners away from the savior savior when people or christians act like the prosecuting attorneys and the judges themselves it turns sinners away it turns people away it does not draw them to the savior it turns them from the savior and we will be held accountable for that i guarantee you There's every reason why believers should have one another, should love one another and live in the unity of the faith. We trust the same Savior. We share the same glory. We will one day enjoy the same heaven. We belong to the same Father and seek to do the same work. Witnessing to a lost world that Jesus Christ alone saves from sin. We believe the same truth, even though we may have different views of minor doctrinal matters, and we follow the same example that Jesus set for his people to live a holy life. Yes, believers do have their differences. We do not always think exactly alike. We do have our own thoughts. We do have our own personalities, but we have much more in common. And this should encourage us to love one another and promote true spiritual unity. So how do we know that Christians go to heaven? Because of the price that Jesus paid. See 1 Thessalonians 5, 9 and verses 10. 
and the promise that Jesus made in John 14, 1 through 6, and the prayer that Jesus prayed in John 17, verse 24. The Father always answers his son's prayers, so we know that believers who die do go to heaven and behold the glory of God. In verses 25 and 26 in chapter 17, there are no petitions. Jesus simply reported to his Father about the ministry in the world. And he made several declarations that are important to us. He declared that the world does not know the Father, but that we believers know him because the Son has revealed the Father to us. The world certainly has many opportunities to get to know the Father, but it prefers to go on in blindness and hardness of heart. Our task as Christians is to bear witness to the lost world and share God's saving message. He also declares the importance of truth and love in the church. Believers know God's name, his nature, and even share in that divine nature. Jesus makes it clear that truth and love must go together. See Ephesians chapter 4, verse 15. It has well been said that the truth without love is brutality, that love without truth is hypocrisy. Excuse me, let me say that again. It has well been said that the truth without love is brutality, that love without truth is hypocrisy. The mind grows by taking in truth but the heart grows by giving out in love. Knowledge alone can lead to pride, and love alone can lead to wrong decisions. Christians' love must not be blind. As we review this prayer, you see the spiritual priorities that were in the Savior's heart. The glory of God, the sanctity of God's people, the unity of the church, the ministry of sharing the gospel with the lost world. That is the ministry right there. We today would be wise to focus on these same priorities. One day, each one of us will have to give an account of his or her ministry. It's a solemn thought that we shall stand before the judgment seat of Christ and give our final report. In closing, I trust that we will be able to say, I have glorified thee on the earth. I have finished the work which thou gavest me to do. See John 17 verse 4. Amen.